And it's the idea of how you can be creative in almost anything. It's the idea that this kind of everyday creativity and how much people are creative without even really realizing they're being creative. Because we have all of these little misconceptions about creativity. You know, we think, oh, it's, it's just the art. Welcome you to another episode of Reaching Your Goals. Reaching Your Goals is a career podcast where I sit down with truly inspiring individuals and we dig deep on leadership and career-related topics to provide you with the insights to get one step closer to living a fulfilled professional life. We all have goals we want to reach, but sometimes we need a little push. We need those insights to get from motion into action. And that's why we are here. In case you wonder, depending on the day, I either work as a certified executive and career coach or a management consultant and I have an MBA from NYU Stern School of Business. My mission is to inspire you to reach your goals, lead with kindness and have some fun along the way. This week, it's all about the link between creativity and well-being. Basically, we want to understand how creativity can help us to feel better. If I hear you say, no, oh, this is not for me because I'm not creative. This is one thing we will talk about at length. Everybody can be creative and we will learn from my wonderful guest, James C. Kaufman, on what questions to ask to ignite your creative fire. So this is especially for you, actually. And it's not about becoming the next painter shown in the Louvre. It's not about that. Is all about the small creativity in your everyday life that has meaning. But let's wait for James to tell us more about all that. So James, he's a professor of education and psychology at the University of Connecticut. He has written or edited more than 50 books. These include the forthcoming The Creativity Advantage and Lessons in Creativity from Musical Theatre Characters, as well as the Cambridge Handbook of Creativity and Creativity 101. James has won many awards, including Menzer's Research Award, the Torrance Award from the National Association for Gifted Children, and APA's Berlin, Arnhem and Farnsworth Awards. He co-founded two major journals, Psychology of Aesthetics, Creativity and the Arts, and Psychology of Popular Media Culture. He has tested Dr. Sanjay Gupta's creativity on CNN and appeared on screen complete with white lab coat in the comic book documentary Independence. James lives with his wife, Alison, his sons Jacob and Asher, and a menagerie currently containing two dogs, an African grey parrot, five rats and an axolot. They are based in Connecticut in the US. James, it's wonderful to see you again. I'm so excited to learn about creativity and well-being today. Let's get started. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. I like to start the interviews with rapid-fire questions, short questions, short answers. Are you ready? I'm ready. Your name is James C. Kaufman. What is the C short for? The C stands for Corey. Oh, that's a nice name. Yeah, I think it was so that there would be 17 letters in the name because me and my brother and sister all have 17 letters in our names because that's one of my mom's lucky numbers. <laughs> wow. And we just heard that you love animals. If you 
you could be an animal, which one would you be and why? Oh, that's a good question. My first instinct is to say dogs because I love dogs, but then I'm also thinking, what I actually want to do that all day. I like the idea of something like a swan that mates for life. I'm going to probably stick to dog. I know what a dog's day is like all day. Nice. We just heard that you are the author or the editor of more than 50 books. It's a lot. Is there one book you wish you had not written? Oh, that's a good question. There's no book that I specifically wish I hadn't written because I'm not embarrassed of any of them. But there are certainly many that I couldn't answer a whole lot of questions about. Like I've edited books on topics from evolution to neuroscience, and they all involve creativity or intelligence. But I wasn't necessarily the expert on it. I was more helping out or doing stuff. So I wouldn't necessarily go and be talking about them a whole lot. And do you have a favorite book? Of mine or of all yes, time? Yes, of yours. It's going to sound kind of cheesy, but the two that are coming out this year, The Creativity Advantage, which just came out, and then Lessons in Creativity for Musical Theater Characters, which I did with my dear friend and who's a composer, Dana P. Rowe. Those are the two that are closest to my heart. In my own voice, they're written with stories and anecdotes type stuff. And the Creativity Lessons allows me to kind of indulge my absolute passion for musical theater, which I usually don't get to do. Those are my two favorites. The baseball book was the first one, and it was with my dad, so that also is a very special place in my heart. I love it. And we will be talking also about well-being today. What do you need to be at your best? I have a lot of comfort things. My favorite moments in life are usually very simple. Usually it's me, my wife, and my sons kind of in the bedroom, watching, usually watching a movie. And I often will say, like, you know, I, I have my boys, I have my dogs, I have my wife, I have my water on the side of the bed. We're watching a movie. Life is good. Simple, but, but very, very nice and very comforting. Well, I hear a strong, strong family value right there. Yeah. It's funny how family values sometimes has more conservative meaning, but in terms of just liking family, yes. I think it's beautiful if you ask me. And who is one of your role models? First person that comes to mind is my dad. He's an IQ test developer and researcher. And just growing up, he was the person who just taught me about psychology and was just a really good role model for how to do good work and, and live a good life. Oh. He still is. I'm glad to hear that. And you mentioned your dad. How would your family and your friends describe you in one word? Hopefully loyal, maybe loving, maybe creative. From your point of view, what is the most important quality in a leader? Loyalty. Would you mind sharing more? Having other people's backs. Like as, as a mentor to graduate students, to me the biggest thing is that I have their backs and look out for them all possible. Really, it's the same with anybody I would call a good friend. I am loyal to people. I'm not loyal necessarily to institutions or organizations or groups, you know. And so to me, it's that individual loyalty to human beings that I find the most important thing. Two more questions for the rapid fire. What is the best advice you received in your personal and your professional life? When my wife was pregnant with our second child, I was talking to a very dear friend of mine, Jonathan Plucker, and he was talking about you know, how much more work having two children is than one, but that ultimately, nobody's going to care if you have 10 pubs or 15 pubs in a year. It doesn't matter, you know? And that having that 
work-family balance. You know, having that value what you do with work, care about it and do it. But I'm now extrapolating to my own, you know, but like taking that further, like to me, that means, I mean, I work very hard, but I don't work weekends. I don't work evening. That's time I want to be with my family or just recharging. I mean, I feel like there is so much, so easy, particularly in academia to just work and work and work and work. And so often it's doing these things for organizations or your university that I never know if they actually matter or are needed. You know, I mean, making sure that you put yourself and the people you love at a, at a top priority. I'm never quite so sure how much more productive you are when you work that much more or if it matters. I hear you. And last question for the rapid fire. What is one thing that people often get wrong about you? Let's say, do you publish a lot? People tend to assume I'm a workaholic. Mm. I'm not a workaholic. I like what I do very much, and I enjoy what I do, and I'll work hard, but I have a lot of downtime. I have a lot of time I spend with family, friends. I don't work as much as people think I do. If I'm on a hunch here, I bet having that balance and having that quality time is what allows you to recharge your batteries and then to deliver all this work. That's my guess when I hear that. I think it's also, I remember my first job, which was in more industry. My supervisor talked about the 80-20 rule. 80% of the work takes 20% of the time, and it's that last 20% that takes the rest of the 80%. And he talked about how there are Toyotas and there are Cadillacs, and our company does the Cadillac. And all I could think of was, what is wrong with a Toyota? You know, I mean, it's a good car. And to me, it's distinguishing what's 80%, what's 90%, what's the 98%. I feel like so many people put 98% for things that don't need more than 80%. It's knowing what stuff is worth your time, knowing so much time stuff is worth. When doing a perfectly good B-plus job is something that nobody will know the difference between a B-plus and A-minus. Do the B plus. I mean, I'll pick the things to get obsessed with. Like the creativity advantage, I'm sure I was at the 98%, whatever, but because I wanted to. And now we already learned a little bit already about you. But to add on to that, could you also share the key milestones that led you to where you are today? Sure. I wanted to be a creative writer. I was writing stories when I was a kid. I went, when I was in high school, I worked as a freelance journalist and covered things like water polo for the local newspapers. I went to college to be a creative writing major. I ended up double majoring with psychology because it was, I knew it from parents. And I remember my junior year, I had begun writing to MFA programs for more information for creative writing. And one place had this little, like, This is back in pre-internet days. I mean, it was internet, but not everything was on it. This little, like, slip of paper. And it said, every year we graduate 15 MFAs in creative writing. And every year there are 20 jobs in the whole country for people with MFAs in creative writing. Hey. If you can do anything else than creative writing, do that other thing. Maybe it was supposed to be inspiring and to have you go, yes, I must do it. But all I could think of is I can do something else. I don't know what. And so I kind of just, I applied scattershot to psychology programs. I didn't know what I was interested in. I would look up interesting topics, see who was studying it. 
I got very, very absurdly lucky. And I ended up being accepted to work with Bob Sternberg at Yale. And it was an amazing experience. He was an amazing mentor. The first two years I struggled. I didn't know what I wanted to study. And at the end of the second year, when I'd done, you do two masters at Yale. The first one was an experiment. I was doing something like memory, and it was just terrible. I mean, I did a bad job, and I wasn't interested in it. And I remember thinking, oh, my God. But I kept thinking I was still writing creatively. The irony is, you know, Bob studied creativity. And so I was like, well, what about if I try that? And Bob gave me this list of some books to read. And I spent that summer kind of locked in my parents' basement and just reading these books. And for the first time, I was reading stuff on psychology that wasn't unfathomably boring. All of a sudden, like, this doesn't suck. Great. And from that moment on, I knew it would be creativity. And really since then, God, that was more than 25 years ago. Those are the big things I think of. But after two years in industry, I knew I didn't want to do industry. I mean, it's good if you can do it. It certainly pays better. But I ended up, again, very, very lucky and got a job at Cal State San Bernardino, where I was a professor and I ran the Learning Research Institute. And they gave me freedom. I loved it. I mean, I, I, I love the University of Connecticut, don't, don't get me wrong, but Cal State was also very special. This, yeah. you know, it was a lot of first-generation students, it's a lot of students who were amazing and could, with a certain amount of mentorship or guidance, could just do amazing things. And the faculty really just cared about the students, and it was a wonderful environment. I was there for 11 years, and I mean, was very happy to come to UConn. I love UConn also. It allows me to have PhD students, which Cal State didn't. Nice. And you've been mentioning creativity a number of times. And I guess it's something you can talk about for hours, but how would you very briefly define creativity? If you read a lot of articles on creativity outside of the field, they often start with, nobody agrees on how to define creativity. And that's utter nonsense. Like, at a very basic level, we say creativity is... Anything that is both novel or new and task appropriate. It's one of the larger parameters in terms of it encompasses in a way everything. But I also honestly kind of love it because I think creativity can be almost anything. But as long as there is some element of original, new, different, and as long as there's some element of it being relevant or useful or task appropriate, as in creativity is not chaos. Creativity is not just being new for the pure sake of being new. You know, what it means to be task-appropriate is very, very different. If we're talking performance art, task-appropriateness could be almost anything. But if we're talking, let's say, I mean, cooking, yes. task-appropriate can be a lot of things, but it should be edible. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. Like, if you make scrambled eggs and you put in glass, that's yeah. new, it's different. And dangerous. And dangerous. My friend David Cropley is an engineer who studies creativity and he always talks about if you're building a bridge, it can be the most beautiful bridge, the most new design in the world. But if it falls down, it's not a creative bridge. Mm, I like that. So what I'm learning is like the two key descriptors are the novelty and the task appropriateness. Yes. You've been working on creativity for 20 plus years now. What do you find most fascinating about it? I like looking at creativity across, across many different domains. 
my my collaborator and who I developed the Four Cs with, I would go up to Oregon back when he back when he was at Oregon. We plotted it out over a couple of of trips. And one trip we went to the Oregon County Fair where everything was like that. And that was this very powerful, like, wow, look at all this creativity. Because with the four C's, the idea is, you know, there's mini C. And that's this personal creativity. It's creativity that is meaningful to you. But it might not be to anybody else. I mean, maybe you have this sudden thought or insight or idea. It might be something you never share with anybody But at the mini-C level, it's creative. If you do share it and you get feedback and you work on it, that's when you can get little C, this everyday level. And anybody can be mini-C. And nearly almost anybody can be little C. It's this next step. That's when if you practice and you keep doing it and maybe you go to school for it, maybe not. You don't need to for this. But you eventually reach that level where you're a bit of an expert. And you're starting to get published, produced, recorded, distributed. And that's pro-C, where you're starting to make, even if it's a little one, an impact on the field. To a certain extent, that's all that we can ever be sure of. But if you keep plugging away, then the possibility is that you could become big C. And that's the creative genius, and that outlives you. That's for generations to come. But of course... Given it means it outlives you, we may not know it. I mean, certainly there are many people whose creativity ended up outliving them where they assumed they would be forgotten. I was just thinking about the artists that died being poor, and now we see their paintings in the museums, and they are sold for like tens of millions. Yeah. I mean, I was just reading, and I hadn't read about this, but I blocked in his name, but this folk artist, he died in like a home and his landlord found all these stories he did and this whole world he created. And after his death, it, you know, it became this legend of outsider art. Wow. Never would have occurred to him that anybody was ever even going to read it. I mean, these things are rare, but they happen. You also said, and that's one thing I really love when I hear that, is that there's creativity across domains in almost anything and that oftentimes it's hidden. People don't even know that they are creative. What is the misconception there? So many people see creativity as just for the arts or maybe the arts and science or the arts and business. If it falls out of that, it's just, it just doesn't fit often what people think of. So when people have in mind, oh, well, I'm not creative, I don't draw, I don't write poetry, I don't play the piano or whatever, you can creatively train your dog. You can creatively figure out how to fix something when you're missing the basic materials. There are just so many different ways that you can be creative in anything. If we miss that part of acknowledging ourselves, oh, I'm actually creative because I'm making a cake and instead of flour, which I don't have, I'm using nut, whatever. If you don't acknowledge that I'm actually creative, what am I missing there? A lot of it is we can identify with as being creative or not being creative. And you know, it's not the end of the world. If, let's say we're, we're creative, we don't realize it. It's not like it's the end of the world. We miss out on a certain benefit we identify as being creative, that often means that you might get more opportunities. There's something called self-efficacy where, you know, you think that you can do something. Usually people with higher creative self-efficacy are often a little more creative. 
and they're often more likely to then be creative, to go out and do something. So if you think, I'm not creative, it doesn't mean that you wouldn't still, you know, swap out eggs for butter, but means that it's a more conscious thing, like, oh, there are, you know, there are so many opportunities for people to be creative, and of course most are in the arts. If you don't see yourself as being creative, you're less likely to pursue them. You said before that those personal creative things, I might just have those thoughts, I just do it myself, and it's just for me, but it has meaning. And I guess that is then, or that's my question, is that then the link to well-being, that those moments, they become meaningful and they bring me joy? It's certainly one of several connections. Interesting thing about creativity is a link with well-being. It, it's not necessarily super obvious. So, for example, the whole thing that got me interested in this creativity advantage, when you study creativity, you assume everybody knows creativity is important. But then when you get, you start working with schools or workplaces or just giving talks, nobody will ever say, why, why should we care about creativity? Well, some people will, but that's still rare. But when it comes time to actually allocating money or time, that's when people will tend to just not get back to you. If we're talking schools, does creativity make you a better student? I mean, it's linked to GPA, but so are a lot of things. And it's certainly not the fastest way to get your students to be better test takers or do better. Is it related to business success? I mean, yes, but more longer term. If you need immediate results, creativity isn't necessarily going to pay off right away. And even with well-being, well, is are creative people happier as a blanket statement? Not especially, not necessarily. So much depends on what type of creativity. How are they being creative? One thing that kept intriguing me as I would think about it is, you know, like, if you read what creators say about creativity, an awful lot, particularly writers, will talk about how, oh, you know, the easiest way to write is you just open up a vein and you bleed, or, you know, writers are tortured and all this stuff. And, and so it certainly sounds like being creative would be terrible for you. And yet, you look at an awful lot of research and it's just, it's not. So much comes down to pro process versus product. If we're talking about the kind of creativity where you are determined to write the great, the, the great American or the great international novel, or to have your paintings in the Louvre or whatever. But that's not necessarily the kind of creativity or creative desires that will necessarily improve. The kind that usually helps is when you're just being creative because you want to be creative. So, for example, there's a whole stream of research. Right now, a lot of it's being done by Jennifer Drake, where she'll look at people who are feeling sad or anxious or angry, and then she'll have them draw or write. And she's done this in all sorts of different conditions. And initially, we, like when I was first reading it, I assumed that the people who would express themselves through their creativity would be the most helped. The people who are most helped are the people who were just doing it for fun. The people who were drawing, drawing is fun. Writing can be fun. They show the most improvement. If you look at a lot of just creative leisure activity, you know, the stuff we do for fun, you know, so there was all this research during the pandemic lockdown on, you know, virtual singing and either listening to music, making music, all this stuff, and all these mental health benefits. 
a lot of it is just as simple as being creative is very enjoyable for a great number of people. And if that is at least a focus, if not the main focus, it's enjoyable. It makes you feel better. I mean, it sounds so simple. I can echo that. During the pandemic, I picked up a new hobby, spending more time at home. So I, I started sewing. And when I wear something that I made myself, it's like I'm just proud of myself, remembering, oh, I made this. It's not that these things are that beautiful or anything. It's just I made it. And that's what matters in that context for me. Absolutely. It's going from passive consumption, which don't get me wrong, that's not bad, but towards being a little more active. Like, I love watching movies. What's made it a lot more, much more enjoyable. The book I'm just starting is on thinking about creativity through the movies. And so now when I'm watching the movies, I'm thinking, how do they relate to this creativity concept? And I'm fleshing it out and I'm doing a lot more active analysis. Uh, it's much more enjoyable than just watching it. Oh, that was nice. And then moving on, but thinking about it and then linking it to stuff and associating. Finding the joy in the creative outlet, is that then also linked to intrinsic motivation to get the most out of it? Yes. And, and motivation is fascinating to me because it's very complex. Like if you just read a, a quick thing on it, Generally, there tends to be intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. Intrinsic, you love it. Extrinsic for an external reward. But it's also not that simple because you're never intrinsic about all aspects. The book that just came out, The Creativity Advantage, I really enjoyed writing it. I also had to go through and make sure all the references were there and just generally edit it. And then there was copy editing and all this stuff that I actually had an amazing copy editor on this one. So I actually enjoyed it. But usually I don't enjoy copy editing because usually it's really boring. But because you want to see the book out or you want to see, you know, that, that next thing, that if you are only intrinsically motivated and incapable of being extrinsically motivated, you run the risk of not finishing stuff. Because, I mean, yeah, creativity is fun, but it's not only fun. With this podcast, you're going to have to edit it, edit, promote it, send it out. And some of that will be fun and some of it won't. It's surfing this balance. Do we have, do we have an 80-20 rule here as well? Like if 80% is fun and you enjoy it, then you can take the 20% that is so la la. So much also depends on context. Like if you're looking at does intrinsic or extrinsic motivation lead to better or you know, higher or lower levels of creativity, if you're talking about in school, intrinsic is positively linked and extrinsic negatively. If you're talking like in the workplace, both tend to be positively. Yes. Otherwise, the idea of a pay rise would not work. Right. It's not a bad thing. It's like if you still have to put food on the table and then choosing a profession that pays double versus something else. Or it's like when you were looking at the MFA and were like, okay, with that marketing, maybe not. It makes sense. And I mean, if you are truly struggling, a lot of your creativity goes into survival. And we don't talk about that. The fact that to a certain extent, having the luxury of being able to do art usually means you don't have to worry about surviving. And so the creativity that people use to just get food on the table sometimes, we don't call that creativity often. Yes. But that resourcefulness is actually, it is creative. Absolutely. But I also think it's interesting to note That so many people, if they are lucky enough to not have to worry about money, they do go into art. 
or do something creative. I mean, people tend to not do science creatively for fun. We can figure out why. But whether it's any type of art or everyday stuff or inventing or tinkering or building stuff, I mean, the people who do have that luxury do often go towards creativity. I think it's interesting to think about, you know, that if we have to just focus on how to survive, that's one thing. But if we do have the, the luxury of leisure time, so much of leisure time is spent pursuing creativity, not all of it. We'd mentioned meaning earlier. Like there's this idea by Robert J. Lifton of what he calls symbolic immortality. And I, and I love it. And it's this idea that we're all going to die. And that's this kind of devastating thought if you really think about it. But what can help is this idea that part of us can symbolically live forever. And creativity is absolutely one path, but it's not the only path. I mean, another path is kids, whether it's having your own biological kids or mentoring, fostering, and helping nurture kids. And if you just quickly take a step back for creativity and well-being for our audience, if they say, I want to increase my well-being, they probably need to let in more creativity into their life. How can people get started to become more creative if they have the perception of themselves that they are not creative people? So I teach a creativity class for undergrad, kind of like intro to creativity. And the big assignment is to do a big creative project on whatever they want. And some students love this and some students panic. The questions that I usually ask them are the same that I do to people who just who want to be creative. I mean, one, and this question, I mean, it's to a degree, it's obvious, but what are you interested in? You know, what do you do in your spare time? Is there some way to do it creatively or to do something creative in that area? And this is where some people, again, they may be being creative and not realize it. So a lot of people play sports in their spare time. You can be incredibly creative in sports. I often have a lot of our student athletes in the class just reading what some of them talk about, you know, this particular, the way they play, the improvisation in the middle of the sport or planning strategies, any of this stuff. Creative. Another big one is I talk about is what my friend and colleague Vlad Glavinu calls affordances. What do you have access to? And this can be materials. It can be people you know, because... Creativity requires affordances. If you want to play the piano, you need access to a piano. But this is then also where if you don't know what you want to do, you can start with what do you have access to or who do you have access to? You know, I mean, a lot of my students will have a parent or a grandparent who do something in crafts or construction or building stuff or making stuff. And so they will crochet a blanket. They will knit something. They will compile family recipes. Um, a lot of people do cooking because everybody eats. So, so much of it can be what you have access to. It can be what do you need to do anyway. Yes. I have one student who made food that looked like one culture's food, but used ingredients from a different culture. Oh, wow. So, it was so clever. Like, it would be like, like it, was, it would look like street tacos. It would taste like Kung Pao chicken. That's intriguing. There, the, the attention's on the aesthetics of the food. I mean, the eye is also eating. And question, how much time do you need to spend on creative hobbies, creative endeavors to feel an impact on your well-being? It's kind of funny because there aren't quite as many studies on this as I would have thought. There are some things. 
there's a whole line of work on expressive writing, which is people who journal or blog or diary or write fiction. Usually that's, they ask people to do it at least 30 minutes at a time, at least three days a week. That's enough to have the good effects happen. But I also think a lot varies. I think it's also very different if we're talking about a creative activity where you are taking a break and doing something totally different. Like if you're trying to learn an instrument, for example, you know, so you have a ukulele and any time you're spending on that ukulele is, is special blocked off time versus if you're doing creative gardening or creative cooking or, you know, anything where it's something you might already be doing, but you're doing it a little differently. It's almost like a different pool of hours from that you're, that you're drawing from. But there tends to not be any very strict minimum amount, like a checklist, you know, yeah. that I'm aware of anyway. And one thing that I was scribbling down before, and I really didn't want to forget about it, you were saying that there is this misconception that I think kids are creative and then they lose it, that that's a misconception. A lot of people feel like, oh, I was so creative as a kid and I'm not anymore And I'm not saying people don't feel that way. It's related to how many people say schools kill creativity. And again, I'm not saying that no schools do it. Of course, some schools. But it's generally, there does tend to sometimes be what's called a fourth grade slump. Sometimes it's found to be more in the sixth grade. A, I think some of that is it's, that's when time begins getting structured. So I don't think it's that kids lose the ability to be creative. It's that now they're doing other things. The other thing is, it's not necessarily like it goes like this and plummets. It just tends to plateau. That's when all the other things come into play. Because some kids, yeah, maybe their creativity plateaus in fourth grade or fifth grade or sixth grade. But then many will start amping up again in high school or in college or whenever they start getting a little more free time, a little more control over what they can do. And the one thing that I'm also hearing in, in that is that Everybody has the ability to be creative because we've proven it when we were little, say younger than 10 years old. So we all have it in us. So the question is now to get it out of us. And you said that the first question is to ask ourselves, what am I actually interested in? Yes. And then you said, can you do it creatively? So I guess the homework for anybody listening to us is to check what is it that they like. And then the challenge is this weekend to do it in a different way. Yes. Sometimes even before that, there's a personality factor called openness that's really important and linked to creep. And that's as simple as trying new things or welcoming new ideas. If somebody is listening to this and thinking, oh God, I don't necessarily want to do that. There are some, it could be as simple as do something a little different. If normally you make this type of meal, you don't need to be wild and creative. Just make a little bit different meal. If normally... You go home this way, try to find a different way home. It can be something so simple. It's not even I'm saying this is always being creative, but it's being open. Mm. Let one of your ideas be challenged. Learn about a different culture. Learn about a different perspective or point of view. It's another really good gateway experience for creativity. And then once you've done that, clap yourself on the shoulder and be a little bit proud of yourself. Absolutely. Being open isn't always easy. No. We like our routines. I like my routines. I like, you know, there are things that I like doing and I like doing them. And so breaking out of that. But I mean, there's the unknown. If we do something differently, what to expect. 
So there is a risk with that. And creativity so often entails some level of risk-taking. The ability to tolerate ambiguity. These aren't always easy things. I mean, being able to handle uncertainty. There's a reason why people don't like being, you know, people don't like being spontaneous always. Some people do, some people don't. Like if you're somebody who hates spontaneity and then you just suddenly jump into, I'm going to try doing something totally unplanned, you might hate it. It's okay to move small. It's okay to do small incrementation. In addition to mini C and off, a lot of my theories and my models emphasize the power of the small, that we think about creative works as being these amazing things, but replication, so doing something just in your own way. You know, you go into a museum and drawing one of the paintings, it still counts. Yes. It's going to be big C. It's not going to be genius, but, but that's okay. Little steps matter. I think there's then also always this inspiration and to have also looked into a different world and dared. And there's so much, to me, it sounds like this personal growing and growing in, into our potential and living curiosity and becoming somebody slightly more interesting, intriguing, a little bit better. I feel like this is a pathway to get to a better version of ourselves, like to the person we can be because it's already in us. And what's nice is a lot of the processes and the traits that we use for creativity are similar to ones that we use for just basic being a good person. Like, if we think about well, what does creative thinking entail, it entails often being very cognitively flexible. You know, so not being rigid and fixed, but thinking about things in this much more broad, expansive way. When you apply that, let's say, thinking about humans that way, that's when... People who are more cognitively flexible, people who are less rigid, tend to be less prejudiced, tend to be less biased. Being able to tolerate uncertainty, ambiguity, I mean, it's also just it's being tolerant to a certain extent. There's some, some marvelous work just on pro-social motivation and creativity and how a lot of people use their creativity to help other people. I mean, even just the basic people who are open to new things, often that includes being open to new cultures open to people who may disagree with you. Again, the more you go on those dimensions, the more likely you are to have somebody who isn't prejudiced, isn't hateful. It's less about how creative they are. So it's not, if all of us were magically more creative, it doesn't mean the world would be a better place. I mean, you can use your creativity to do horrible, disgusting, terrible things. True. But the process, the traits, the character strengths or just the tendencies that people who tend to be creative tend to use their experience. I believe those skew more positively. I think that was a really, really nice, insightful, inspiring way to wrap it up. Or is there one last thing you would like to share on creativity? And then I still have three questions for you. The way that I wrapped up the creativity advantage, I was trying to think of the, okay, what am I leaving them with? The first half of the book, and this is kind of as I was mentioning with Mini-C and all that, It was kind of that it all counts. And the second part was that it's not that creativity is a wonder drug, but it brings all sorts of small good things. And this idea, it all counts, almost all. And it results in all these small but good outcomes. That's what I feel about. That's how I feel hopeful about creativity. I love it. I hear the magic, the magic of creativity. <laughs> 
And I said, I have three more questions left. What is coming up next for you? Well, I'm starting this book on creativity in the movies, just musings and thoughts about creativity, but in the guise of also talking about different narratives in movies. I'm working on some more stuff on creativity in theater with my friend Dana Rowe. And a lot of the research I've been starting is about creative needs, motivations for being creative that goes a little bit beyond intrinsic, extrinsic, looking at creativity and meaning, and looking at creativity and other positive outcomes like empathy, equity, a lot of the stuff my graduate students are, are working on right now. Wow. I think we have to talk again when I hear that and say, who else should I have on the show? And this is especially interesting since we got introduced through Sovrana Iftivich-Springle, who I had on, and then she was mentioning you. The two people who come to mind are two of the people I've also talked about. Vlad Glavino does stuff not just on creativity, but on possibility thinking. And he's founding this whole movement of possibility studies. What is possible? He's a very sociocultural perspective, and he's absolutely brilliant. The other person who comes to mind is my collaborator and composer, Dana P. Rowe, where he's lived this creative life. He's written all of the musicals that are amazing. And now, in addition, he's also working on being an arts coach and on kind of taking what he's learned and applying it to helping people get in touch with their creativity. I think both those people would be just, it would be a great conversation and it would just touch on, on different stuff, you know? even though they're collaborators. Yes. I will ask you for the introduction afterwards. And for people who feel inspired, they can check out your website. It's James C. Kaufman. They can find you on LinkedIn. They should buy your new books. It's The Creative Advantage and Lessons in Creativity for Musical Theater Characters. Is there any other way for people to stay in touch with you? Honestly, email is probably the best. I'm not as good at checking things like Twitter and Facebook. I do check them. I'm just less good. Yes. If you Google me in Yukon, it'll, it'll come up with how to drop me a line. Yes. I'm not always good with answering, but I try and I aim to do better. <laughs> For my personal experience, you were very fast and very responsive. So thank you. And big thank you for joining me today and sharing so much wisdom on creativity. Like I learned a lot and I feel inspired and I love the magic of creativity. So thank you so much for sharing. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. the link between creativity and well-being. I hope you feel inspired to ignite your creative fire. If you want to talk about it, please tag me at Delegate and Reaching Your Goals podcast. And you're still listening. If you have not yet hit the subscribe button, please do so wherever you listen to your podcast. This way, you will get the next episode in your inbox when it drops on Tuesday. And if I can ever be of help with my coaching head on, You can just drop me an email at johanna.herbs.delegate.com and we take it from there. You will find the address in the show notes. And with that, we are done for today. We are one step closer to reaching your goals. Talk to you guys next week. Bye.